1: that's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, no by law, 80 plus, conditions apply. See website for details.
0: I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over a 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Hi, everybody. This is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêcher, meaning digger. Everybody, welcome along to another edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. It's one with a slight difference today. I'll let you know all about that in a second. But first of all, thank you very, very much indeed to tvsportsblog.com and for their support of the Cricket Badger podcast. Give them a follow on Twitter as well at tvsportsblog. Thanks for all your nice comments about the Cricket Badger podcast over the last few weeks. Got plenty more to come as well in the foreseeable. Got some terrific chats already in the bag with Samit Patel, Mark Cosgrove. Dion Craiche, Cookie Patel, and Dougie Brown. And I'm not going to tell you who just yet, but there's two or three really big names that are in the pipeline for further editions of the Cricket Badger podcast. I'm quite excited by them. I'm hoping they're going to say yes. Signs are they might do. And I'll be bringing those to you very, very soon indeed, as soon as I get them into the recorder. One of them in particular will be quite special. I'll tell you more about that if they come true, but today we start a slightly different series of Cricket Badger podcasts, going to hopefully do a few more of these as we go through the next year, but it's a kind of famous fans version of the Cricket Badger podcast, usually everybody that comes on the show is either a journalist or a player or a coach or somebody involved in the sport, well my guest today is somebody who is known for his performances in another field entirely, but he is a massive cricket fan, When I was preparing for this interview with Neil Foles, the former snooker player, current commentator in the sport, I did a little bit of research about his career in snooker. And at the back of my mind, when I I started speaking to him, I was thinking, how can I get him onto cricket? What happens if I start talking to him and realise that he actually isn't that much of a cricket fan? This is just going to be a snooker podcast. Far from it. He's been around the world watching England. He knows his cricket, I can assure you. And I actually had to struggle at times to get him back onto snooker to talk about snooker because he was very excited to talk about cricket. So I think you'll enjoy this Cricket Badger podcast. We do obviously talk about snooker as well. But for the next hour, this is very much a cricket podcast with a bit of snooker thrown in. From somebody that knows that sport very well indeed as well. Neil Folds, a former world number no. three snooker player. It was a shame because after I spoke to Neil Folds, I told a friend that I'd been chatting to him and he sent me a video and remember snooker loopy I think that was just before Neil's time in Barry Hearn's matchroom team they did a follow-up with Chaz and Dave and in the video Neil is wearing a beautiful yellow suit whatever possessed you Neil if you're listening to this I'd love to know the answer were you coerced to wearing the yellow two points I think if I'd been you I'd try to get the blue or the black it's a really good chat with Neil Foles I've thoroughly enjoyed this one actually talking to him about snooker and about cricket on this edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast.
1: It's that badger style.
0: I went over on a tour to Sri Lanka years ago
1: the the one where England won 2-1 when they were 1-0 down I think about 99 or 2000 but you know I I must admit I I did like it there
0: It's a place I've never been I've been to a lot of overseas uh, trips and things I mean I I tend to do more county stuff so it's pre-season trips I've been been to Barbados South Africa UAE and all those kind of places but I've never been to Sri Lanka it's one of the ones I want to tick off really
1: Yeah I went to the Barbados test in 2015 actually during the world championships I'd done my 12 days commentary and I went out the day after the, the the my 12 days of snooker finished and uh, didn't watch the last few days of the World Championships, but I was in Barbados watching England lose that test match out there like, in that series.
0: One of my favourite places on the planet, Barbados. It's a, it's a beautiful place to be.
1: Great place. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm yearning to go back there, actually, when it's, when it's possible.
0: <laughs> I think there's a quite a few of us uh, sat at home thinking, right, when this is finished, we're going to do this, this and this and mm. we're going to actually tackle life properly.
1: It's really difficult, uh, James. I mean, you know, uh, all my life I've watched cricket and, uh you know, I must say the spring, because when it, when, when it coincides with the snooker finishing, my, all my snooker stuff, which is the first week in May, I don't think that anything else but cricket then for the next two months, you know, I just put the snooker totally away. And yeah, I just have always absolutely loved it. You know, I go to, I go to probably not as much as you, but I do go to as much county cricket as I can, you know. Who's your county? Well, I'm Middlesex. But I've been a Middlesex member for the last few years. Not not an MCC member, unfortunately. Uh, that That's another story, because I... I, I had a chance to, well, I should have applied years ago. I, I got to the point where I wrote to be an MCC member and was told it was twenty-five years. And I got—I knew John Embury at the time, and, and he said, "Oh, I'll get you the four uh, membership. I can—I can help you with the getting. Um, uh, what is it when, when you need the?
0: Um, you need to be nominated, what? don't you? Yeah.
1: Nominated—that's yeah. the word. Yeah. That was always that was all going to be done, and this is going back a long. Put it that way, it's more than twenty five years ago. And then I got the the letter for saying, you know, lovely letter saying you can go on the list, everything's fine. I never followed it up, and of course I'd have been an MCC member now, I think. But I never just now just felt like Twenty five years seemed too long to to wait. <laughs> you hear yeah.
0: these stories of um, people putting their kids down on the day they were born on the waiting list. I know. That, yeah, they, they they get that as a present when they're twenty five years old. But I know.
1: So, I mean, a Middlesex member have been uh, for a few years. But, but I also go and see Surrey. I know that some people wouldn't understand that. But cricket's not like football, is it? You know, where, you know, if you're a Liverpool fan, you would never go to see Everton, would you? And stuff like that. But cricket's not like that. I've got a couple of good, real good pals who are Surrey members. So in the seasons where the two fixtures dovetail, which they haven't done in the last couple of years, but I think three or four years ago, especially, Middlesex would play one week, Surrey would play the next. And it was absolutely great. You know, I was watching cricket the whole summer which was ideal because I like, I'm, I'm, I'm literally don't do anything else but snooker stuff and when there's no snooker on I'm, I'm, I'm out of work if you like but in a, in a good way don't yeah. watch cricket
0: Sounds like a good life to me Sounds like a very yeah, good life.
1: Yeah well, well it's not bad yeah I mean as I say like everyone else I'm pretty devastating and, and while the weather's been good for this kind of situation where everyone's I mean if it had been raining it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have made me feel any better about the lockdown. But, you know, the fact that it's sunny is kind of it's slightly ironic, really, isn't it? Because you can really get a wet spring, can't you?
0: Sometimes the, the best days at county cricket are in April and, you know, when the sun comes out. Because you can have some beautiful Aprils, as we've just found out. And I, I have been looking out of my window from my one-bedroom flat thinking, yeah. oh... Yeah, what what I'd give to be at cricket today, it would be, be, be fantastic.
1: I know. And you know what? It's not like you take it for granted when it's there because you look forward to it eagerly at the time. It's not just say, well, the next time I get to the other to cricket, I'm going to really love it. Because if you're a cricket fan, you, you always did anyway. You know, you don't you didn't need to be reminded how much fun it is.
0: We seem to have got into this uh, Cricket Badger podcast chat without actually introducing you. So, Neil Foles, uh, wel- okay. wel- welcome to the podcast. I was going to start by saying your Twitter bio. It says, former snooker pro, interests include cricket, snooker and music in no particular order. So cricket's obviously very much part of your life, isn't it? You've only got a certain amount of characters in the Twitter bio, so the fact that cricket's in there, it says something.
1: Cricket has always been my number one interest, really. Um, more so, listen, I've, snooker's been my life. I mean, I mean, Snooker's everything, you know, it's been everything to me. But cricket has always been the thing outside of, of snooker that I love. Obviously, the music bit's a little bit different. I just have a passing interest in that, but love it. But cricket, since I grew up, has always played a huge part in my life and I think you could trace it back to 1977, the the year I mean, I'm born in 1963, so I would have been 13 going into that summer of 77 and I would still followed a little bit of cricket, watched it from school uh, you know, in my school years, but the year when Jeff Boycott was recalled for the Ashes and my dad had already said to me, you know, what a batsman he is I hadn't seen him play because he he had a couple of years in exile, hadn't he? And, um, you know, I got to see him in that series where England won back the Ashes and I won the Ashes, and, and just the way that he batted, you know, his first innings back, he made a century, he made his 100th 100, 100, and I was hooked on the game, really, and of course, that coincided with Ian Botham. He started his career in that series as well, so as far as my cricket in love is concerned, it goes right back to there, and, uh, you know, they're kind of sporting heroes of mine, and uh, I've met them both, actually, so I'm lucky in that regard.
0: Is it those two, Botham and Boycott, that were your kind of poster boys when you were a kid, were they the ones that inspired you to kind of get a lifelong love of the game?
1: Yeah, I think David Darrow as well, because he, he, he made his debut, I'm Trying to think when it was. It was certainly against Pakistan. It might have been 78, but he, he was another one that was coming through. You know, you had to love his style. I don't know whether everything's different when you're young and you look back more fondly of things and maybe when you're young, things create a bigger impression than they do perhaps now when you see cricket. I mean, I, I still love the game equally as much, but certainly that series and uh, everything around it really got me into the game. And I, I've always had a, a fairly... With patience with things you know I mean uh, watching a, a, a test match over five days for someone of 13 or 14 would absolutely not be up many people's street but it was always up my street because you could you could, you know every day there'd be a new star I'd always look forward to the morning sessions and I was get got into it that way and I, I loved the way the game was I loved the commentators things they said TMS and of course in those days it was Richie Benner and Jim Laker doing the, the TV stuff especially and I just loved all that you know the whole everything about it I loved
0: I'm trying to think before I started this Chat with you about the similarities between snooker and cricket, and I, I guess with snooker, there's a very sort of grooved action, isn't it? You get your technique, I guess, and you, you, your stance and what have you, and then you, you're away from that, and that probably doesn't really change too much during your. Your snooker life, or it shouldn't do really, should it, unless you get problems. But and, and cricket's similar in a way. As a batsman, you grooved and you try and hold the shape of a shot. As a bowler, you try and be metronomic and, and continue to you know, repeat that action. But there's not a, not a sport like snooker where you just pretty much stand the same way every single time you play?
1: No, that's right. I mean, I, I think that the thing about snooker is well, while you're at the table, your opponent can do absolutely nothing. You know, there's long periods. If you're playing at, at the highest level, there's quite long periods of, if you like, sitting out where you can be playing the greatest snooker player of all time, but when it's your shot, there is nothing you can do. So you have to take advantage of that. You have to, you know, keep keep them in their chair, basically. Uh, obviously, snooker is an individual sport, but to sort of bring back the comparisons with cricket, I've never really believed that the cricket is only a team game. You know, there's right. there's a lot, of indiv- a lot of individual aspects to cricket, not only, you know, the fast bowler and, and everything he's going through, but more so as a batsman. I mean, you're out there when you're on your own, aren't you? And, you know, you could take it back to what we're saying about boycott. I mean... <laughs> He wasn't the greatest team man, was he? But by being, a, by being an individual, he was helping his team, you know, and he was, he was thinking about himself. And in doing so, he was actually helping his team. I know not everyone's got that view of him, but you know, you know, the point I'm trying to make that you've got to be insular in your way. And, and, you know, Alistair Cook would be the nearest thing that we've seen in, in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, wouldn't we? Where there's a guy who is, you know, the England captain, but when he's out there batting, he's not thinking too much about anything but his own batting.
0: That, that's what I love about it, and and I can feel that coming through from you as as you speak about it. You know, you're not just kind of like a plastic cricket fan. You you're actually immersed in it, and you really love it.
1: I think also, I mean, where I am a little bit lucky is because of my snooker. I've actually played a lot of, if you like, charity cricket, uh, Bunbury cricket stuff like that with David English. So I've met a lot of these guys. Uh, a lot of these guys, like I I've, I've played cricket and batted with Viv Richards. I've met Brian Lara. All these people, and. I've never found any of them to be anything but absolute gents, you know. Really interesting people. Almost all of them very intelligent and, and just, just sort of the kind of people I, I like like being around, you know. And um, so I think that's what I've got a lot of admiration for the cricket. I mean, I, I'll get a little bit vocal on my Twitter occasionally. I do, if I've got something that I'm not happy about, I'll say it. Because I'm lucky that while I'm not that involved in the game at a close level, I feel like I've got the license to say more about cricket than maybe I would at snooker because I'm involved in snooker but I'd like to think that I'm always balanced and one thing I am is always 100% behind England
0: you mentioned playing did you play as a as a school boy were you in the cricket team at school
1: no I didn't play uh, well I played a little bit at school there's hardly any I just went to a comprehensive in South or in West London actually is where I'm from but we didn't play a lot of cricket at school a little bit it was only after that I started playing. I mean, I've always played club cricket, uh, well, to, to a very average level, I have to say, or a very modest level. I'm one of these guys that was sort of like one side of the wicket, sort of like a bottom handed through the leg side. That's <laughs> me. You know, sometimes i been the batting as when I was younger, but I would not say that I've played cricket to any great level. But, you know, again, I've always loved the game. I, I don't play much now. My knees are not up to it now. I'm a bit old for the game. And uh, I, I don't miss that side of it like, like I used to, because I used to like find myself every weekend morning looking out the window thinking please don't rain today I desperately want to have my little bat on a Sunday afternoon but those days are gone for me now and but you know it's always played a secondary to to actually watching the game to me you know
0: the cricket badger podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com give them a follow on twitter at tvsportsblog excellent sporting content it's well worth a look and give them a follow on twitter at tvsportsblog.com yeah, you reached number three in the world in snooker. You're a very fine snooker player, and you'll have met people in your snooker life that will have looked up to you and wanted to get your autograph and what have you. You talk about playing kind of the celebrity charity matches and meeting some of the the big names in cricket. Did you did you get that kind of like star syndrome when you were sharing a dressing room with a Brian Lara or a Viv Richards?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely right. I mean, completely. I, I, I again, when I I was lucky enough to bat with Viv Richards, he couldn't have been a nicer guy. We played. We was playing. A, a footballer's testimonial actually who was at an illness and uh, it was just the best thing ever to, to bat with him for a little while he, you know he, he knew that I couldn't really bat but he, he was encouraging and he was nice and he, he made a century unsurprisingly on that occasion the, the, funny enough the most starstruck I ever got was when I met Ian Botham and I was on a there was a, a quiz show that was on ITV and it was supposedly um, the equivalent of uh, the one on the BBC Question of Sport it was yeah. called Sporting Triangles it wasn't that great there was three teams instead of two I remember um, that it, yeah yeah. It, yeah yeah. and um that was well I met Ian Both because he's one of the team captains on there which is crazy because I think he might have been a team captain on Question of Sport it as was, well yeah. was he? Yeah, yeah. yeah so he's on both maybe people don't realise that Nick Owen was the presenter anyway I, I was on there and um uh, I would think Willie Carson was in my team. or something. I forget the exact dynamics of it, but of course I met Ian Botham and the strangest thing about it was it was right at the time when, I think his wife was about to go on Wogan that evening and do some kind of, um, or Michael Parker's search or Wogan to do something about... Um, think about him and about a book that they'd written or she'd written and um, Ian Botham who still hadn't met said well he's not coming out of his dressing room because he wants a TV in his dressing room and he wants a bottle of champagne in there before he's going to come out I thought this is going to be my dreams are going to be shattered here he's going to be not a very nice bloke but actually he was great you know we spoke about the snooker he had things going on in his life at the time you know as he was you know in his prime Ian Botham was a bit like Alex Higgins wasn't he he had all kinds of side issues going on you know he was got in fell foul of authorities and all that sort of stuff. He was absolutely great to be around. And I, um, but for me, even though I was well-known in my own sport, to, to meet him both was a big deal for me at the time.
0: Well, you were involved in, in snooker. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a successful sport these days, but in you know that 1985 final, Steve Davis against Dennis Taylor, it had all the ingredients of a, a sporting classic and people still watch it and enjoy it today. I can remember my... Mum and Dad allowed me to stay up late to watch that, and alongside about another eighteen or twenty million people around the the UK. But you came into snooker around about that time. You were riding the crest of a wave with snooker, really. You know, those early days in your professional career were the pomp of snooker, weren't
1: they? Yeah, no, that was that was um, the match that people remember. Eighty five. The interesting thing about that, there was eighteen and a half million watching that and, and those figures have never been beaten basically but but people do forget now that the world championship the last one of course we haven't had the one this year yet but the, the Judd Trump final last year might not have captured the same imagination but it was watched by more people worldwide than that you know, many many millions because of the way Snook is more of a global game now but as far as I think the popularity you know, in the UK, in the mid to late 80s into the 90s, you know, snooker was huge. There were less channels to watch, clearly. There was, uh, I think, three channels back then, and then we had Channel 4 coming through. There were just those few opportunities, and live sport was at a premium. I mean, you would never, you'd very rarely see a live football match, would you? The, yeah. the FA Cup final or the European Cup final would be live, but very little else would be. So, to see something live, that the people in snooker became household names. And... uh uh, the BBC did a very good job on it. So you're able to watch something and get into it. You, you may not have always had snooker fans from the start, but a bit like watching a soap opera, you might hate watching Coronation Street, but if you watch it four or five times, you probably want to watch the next one because you know, you'll know you have got into it by then. And I think that's what, how snooker comes through
0: I remember that that uh, that final really clearly, and my mum and dad—they've got passing interest in sport, but nothing in particular. But because, as you say, there was only three or four channels in those days, we just watched it transfixed. My mum isn't a massive sports watcher, but she never got off the settee watching that that final. It just seemed to encapsulate everything that was good about snooker. And what was it like being a pro and turning pro? around that time though because as you say everybody was household names you were getting a lot of attention as a snooker player was that easy to deal with hard to deal with how how did you find that? Well, I didn't like
1: it so much as all that. I mean, listen, I was never one of the big players in that regard. I mean, we've got a lot to, uh, to, to thank the likes of Alex Higgins for, for what he brought to the game, you know, and the final between Dennis and Steve, as well as a few others. You know, when Joe Johnson won the title next year, that was a great sort of an underdog. Yeah. A lot of these people were involved. Then Jimmy White coming through. I was lucky enough to be a part of that. I was never a name on that level, even though I was, as you say, high high in the world rankings. And I was just lucky to have been, there when it was all kicking off really and yeah I, I found it difficult you know that, I think you know going back to cricket I that's why I just, just enjoy popping off watching cricket at Lords watching Middlesex in an afternoon do you know what I mean because I found that easier to do it that way I'd get away from everything not, not necessarily be known although I didn't have a problem with it but I just I didn't really
0: the fame didn't mean a lot to me do you know what I mean yeah but you'd have been recognised in the supermarket though I would imagine by people because <laughs> snooker players were known weren't they at that time yeah no I did get that and,
1: yeah I wasn't I wasn't that comfortable with it. I have to say, not really. I, I liked it. I mean, I liked people coming up and saying nice things, and obviously. But you know, I, I think um, at first it's a bit of a novelty, but then uh, you know, after a while, you you know, wish it wasn't like that. But I mean, this is minor stuff. I mean, can you imagine what it is like when you know very famous people literally cannot go anywhere? without being known it must be pretty difficult people think it's great for them to be a you know david beckham or something like that strangest thing in snooking you know i would say the most i always thought that willie thorne with that sort of bald head and that mustache was as recognizable as anybody anywhere in any sport so he could never go into a a restaurant or anywhere without being recognized because no one else looked like that you know He, (laughs) he had his own look and um you know if you went if you had Willie Thorne and David Beckham went into a restaurant there's more chance they'd noticed him than David Beckham because he just looked different to in you know with, with his, his his features so um I think some people liked it some people didn't you know it depends on your personality
0: I was watching the other day um I pretty much exhausted Netflix but so I watched David Beckham going to Brazil on a motorbike in with a couple of friends and he was going through the Amazon rainforest and they sat at this little cafe in the middle of nowhere in this rainforest and they asked the people on the next door table whether they recognised him and they said no and he said, oh, this is yeah. this is perfect, this is bliss for me because you know, basically everywhere he goes is swamped by people and it was just a nice escape.
1: I'm sure that's very nice, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure that, that must apply. I mean, like you say, Snooker, in that period of time, we, we were very lucky to be recognised and we, you know, we we, we we profited on it all because I was with Barry Hearn and he signed me up and then, you know, he took us to all, all parts of the world so, you know, they were great times for me and I, I'll always be grateful that that was my era for snooker. Although I will say that the point you make about snooker, there's a different kind of audience now. But snooker is huge now. I mean, in China, there's five big ranking tournaments per year. Um, we're getting players from all different parts of the globe now, so it's not really a so much a UK-based uh, game as it was. You know, Britain and Ireland—they—they they, they basically won the world title every year. Obviously, the Canadians have all disappeared out of snooker. There were so many great players on the Canadian players. The game's died there. In Asia, it's, it's a huge game now, and it's actually snooker's on school curriculums in, in many Chinese cities, you know, which is an incredible thing, really. And no wonder they're going to end up with all the great players in a, in, a, in ten or fifteen years' time because they almost deserve it, you know.
0: You mentioned Alex Higgins a, a little bit ago, and he, he was just an incredible character, wasn't he? All the twitches and just the the flashy play that he had, and you you took him down, didn't you? In one of your was it the first World Championships you played? You you beat Alex Higgins.
1: Yeah, my first ever appearance at the Crucible, that was uh, pretty daunting because most people, you know, get the collie wobbles first time. And, uh, yeah, I beat Alex Higgins 10-9. And, you know, I, I've said this before, but the strangest part, if you look at it back on YouTube, is not me beating Alex Higgins. But as soon as the match is over, they go back to the studio and David Icke is the presenter. You know, you think how things have changed, you know, that he <laughs> yeah. was the snooker presenter back then. And uh, and his, his life is, is pretty different to that now. But it, it was kind of strange and it's kind of surreal to see that. That back and you see him saying well that was a big shot Alex Singh is knocked out by this young man we'll have him in the studio in a minute and they interviewed me and all that was, he interviewed me. It was very strange
0: I was looking through your Twitter feed and you posted a video of David Vine he used to be all you know he, he was Mr Snooker wasn't he on the, on the TV and he was yeah. doing the um, shot of the championship and you won it that year and <laughs> um, with a snooker that you, you played and he, right, he, yeah. he picked out um is Rex Williams t- picked uh, picked the winner out of it, the uh, in yeah. out out of the out the trophy and David Vine just leant back and he just read out this woman's name address and almost telephone <laughs> number gave out everything across the BBC airwaves things have changed a lot since then things have
1: changed a lot you know and, and I'm, I'm, I think I think um, maybe we're all as we get older we all yearn for you know things from the past you know I mean I was just looking before you, I spoke to you today about thinking about how much. I, I, some of the cricket matches I watched that you wouldn't think about. And I was just looking at, for instance, something. And I found this today just by chance. And I remember one of the best innings I ever saw at Lords. right? Alan Border played uh, an innings at Lords, And I I, I had to go onto this cricket archive site to find it. And it was a low-scoring county game, 1986. So I'd have just been just coming through at snooker then, but I was there. And it was, it looks like it, it was a terrible pitch, I think. Middlesex made 208. Essex were bowled out for 130. Middlesex then bowled out for 97. So Essex had chased 179. And I remember Alan Border making, he made 59 not out in that game and the wickets fell all around him. Keith Fletcher had tied her. Wayne Daniel was absolutely rampant at the pavilion end, just, just ripping through the Essex batsmen and um, Norman Cowans took wickets at the other end. They got there. And I remember at the end of the season, Alan Border said, that's one of the best things I've ever played. But it was not one of his great innings for Australia. It was 59 not out in a in a county game against Middlesex at Lords. I was there for that innings; It was just brilliant. And I don't suppose many people were there because I remember there was just a smattering of people around the ground. But I mean, I'm sure there's been better things played. But it's funny how things from that era stick in your mind. That's a year after the 85 World Final. But... I remember that so clearly now, like like people remember the snooker that, that year, you know?
0: I think you were right what you said earlier about things from yesteryear, from when you were a certain age, you remember things with rose-tinted spectacles the snow's always deeper, the, sun, the summers are always sunny yeah. aren't they and that some of those things, I mean I, I'm, I've never been happier sometimes than just sitting watching a couple of spinners keeping it to 1.5 and over and all, <laughs> the, all of the tactics as the uh, the fielders crowd the bat and everything. Some people would be completely turned off by that. Yeah, there, there's, there's certain things about cricket that just appeal to to certain types of brain I guess.
1: You've got to understand the game and I don't mean that in like patronising way that people don't understand the game but let's be honest there's a lot of nuances, lots of things in, involved in cricket that you wouldn't understand so if you're watching it with only a very passing interest you wouldn't really have a lot of interest in the aware uh, in pitch over a few days and how things are changing how a spinner might just be containing in the first innings but then trying to bowl aside side out in the second innings warm pitches all that kind of stuff it, it will take a long time for someone to totally understand the game I don't know about you but when when people come up to you and they say yeah I like cricket I say, oh that's great so you have a little chat and then within five minutes you realise I don't have a clue about the game yeah. there's nothing wrong with that I mean I've just said but I think we've all been there where you think hang on this person doesn't really know the game that's fine you know I mean we're all we're different it's no good being a cricket snob either but it's quite a difficult sport to know isn't it or, or to, to know and you know I've never, I've never played it at a high level but I've, I've, I've always followed it and I suppose after about 40 years you're going to have picked up a few things here or there aren't you
0: <laughs> I, I think you're right and I think it's one of those sports where the more you put in almost in doing your homework and trying to work out what all of those tactics are and what all the different nuances are the more you get out of it And but it's also a sport where if you just want to go along and sit in the sun have a pint watch it and not really take it in you can enjoy it but if you actually learn all those nuances you can enjoy it just as much.
1: You can, you can. And, um, you know, I think there's only a, I mean, the, the, there was that, this standard joke going around that, you know, social distancing this year, county cricket would have been the perfect place to go. And, oh, that really and annoys that's me when fact. people say that. I know, and it is annoying. And, and you, know, the, you know, the fact is there aren't that many people that go to county cricket. Funnily enough, it's not like it used to be. I mean, for instance, you know, the, the amount of times I've, because even though I'm a Middlesex fan, I, I, I go to the Oval a lot, I've got friends there. So, you know, you can go to the Oval and there's enough people there, you know, on, on a nice summer day, it's not quite as it was. There's always going to be that little that little hardcore group of people that are just cr- cricket fans. They go a little play for annual and out, and, and I've been there myself. But other people get to watch cricket now and you know and and I don't see that it has to be that way you can see some great games of cricket around the counties it's not boring all this one two men and a dog whatever they say there's more to it than that and you know I I do hope that um, we don't lose county cricket too much I know this year's different we're not speaking about the, the pandemic but I know that you know that there is this sort of urgency to get other forms of the game promoted you feel like County cricket's been pushed back, but I hope that never happens.
0: I've said a lot on this podcast because I've always been a little bit of post of the hundred. I, I set up at the post of the hundred, which probably illustrates that. But the um, the danger with putting all your eggs into a new basket, and it might be fantastic. I'm I'm sure I'll probably watch a few of the hundred games and, and probably enjoy them. But I think if you if you market one particular element of of cricket and don't market another, you get what you wish for as uh, as an organisation, as, as the ECB or as cricket authorities, and. I think there is a a duty of uh, the ECB to market county championship cricket and to tell people how wonderful that can be too. And, you know, unless you tell people when matches are and unless you tell people it's good, they're not going to listen, are they?
1: No, uh, uh, listen, I'm with you. I'm I'm against 100 uh, completely. And um, uh, I think like you, I'm not so small minded that if it was on, I wouldn't watch it. I mean, why why would I not watch cricket? You know, I would, but I don't want it and I think that, that from what I've seen and I, I might have got all this wrong but I can only see people with vested interest in it who promote it I don't think there are many people who are just cricket enthusiasts that are really thinking well wow, I can't wait for 100 to come along because you've already got one uh, you've got the the, the the blast which is good I mean if you can bring about the snooker for a second there is one there's a tournament in snooker called the snooker shootout you may or may not have seen it but it's a short format of the game is that where they get it's any played, certain
0: amount of time to play the show? Yeah, yeah.
1: That's right. It, it's uh, all, all 128 players play. it's, it's played. These, these days, it's played in, in, in Watford, in the Watford Coliseum. It used to be up in Blackpool when it was on Sky, but it's changed broadcasting a few times now. Now, a lot of people hate it, so this is horrible. I, I like it. Now, I, I I work on it, so maybe I'm one of these people with a vested interest. I'm lucky to be a commentator on it, but I really enjoy it. I think it's good, and it's four days of your season and you go back to conventional snooker. I think that snooker shootout's great, I like the T20 stuff. I think that's great. But if there was any more than one form of it, if they said well, we're going to have three more shootout events now this year, I so, say, hang on a minute. Those four days we have in Watford, the guy wins it with fifty grand, gets into another big event afterwards. That is great. But we want. I want to go back. But once I've seen one of those events, I don't really want to keep seeing it. And personally, I do not see any reason for there to be two T20 or. The 100, not being T20, but the nearest thing you'll ever see to it, coming through means nothing to me. I have no interest in it. Now, I know that maybe I'm always going to be a cricket fan anyway, and maybe that there is this suggestion that you're trying to get new people into the sport, but you're trying to get the football people into the sport. You're only going to do that for a short period of time. I'm, I've got no interest in it, personally, and I, I think that the it must not compromise the longer form of the game. If it has to exist, it can't replace anything else.
0: Totally in agreement. I mean, I, I could list about a thousand things why I'm opposed to the, the potential of the 100. But I think I think you're dead right. Yeah, the, the championship is, is great. I mean, people accuse people that are anti the 100 as being stuck in the mud and not looking for change. I, I see the, the need for change. Um, we've seen sport kind of reinvent it itself. We've seen rugby league. We've seen darts. We've seen all the kinds of... Yeah, they add an extra sort of level of polish on the event, don't they? And add a few more flashing lights and try and make it a little bit more funky at times. But I I don't see a reason why you can't do that with cricket. And you can get a new audience into the T20 Blast and you can tell people how great it is and say, come along and watch cricket. But you can still do that with four-day cricket and red ball cricket. And we we saw in the summer, didn't we, with the Ben Stokes heroics at Headingley. You look at the crowd at Headingley for that test match. There were all ages in that. There were all ages of people celebrating that. People were turned on by Red Bull Cricket. Yeah, why not tell people that that's great too?
1: Well, that's right. The, the, the other problem with it is that with Red Bull Cricket, the other thing we saw during the Ashes is that not many players on either side could bat for a long time anymore. Now, uh, obviously, if you take Steve Smith out of the Australian side, I don't think they'd have won the Ashes. I'm sure we'd have won them. But there were, there were only a, him and Labuschagne for, for Australia and, and not too many of, of, of our players who can occupy the crease for long periods now. And one of the reasons for that surely has to be that they never play county cricket. County cricket's at the very beginning of the season and the very end of the season with the odd little window in the middle there. So you, you're actually losing the, the structure of test cricket a little bit and the ability to bat because how can you expect these guys to, to, to play test matches? Because essentially, that they haven't played any red ball cricket. They haven't played any long form of the cricket. In the lead up to it, they, you know, they, I know it was a World Cup year. I understand that. And that was brilliant. But, you know, the test sides around the world are going to struggle. You know, we're going to end up with four-day test matches because no one can, can battle them enough to, to keep five-day test matches going. So, uh, unless you, you know, you get the county game and the state games, wherever you are in the world, uh, still going. Now, I can't see how, you know, it's not going to affect... Cricket at the highest
0: level in test matches, either. Neil Foles, I could get you on this podcast every week because I like what you say. You're a man after my own heart when it comes to to arguing about cricket. It's a a good thing. Can I take you back to snooker, though, very quickly? uh, Because obviously, when we get people on who are cricket fans but are famous in another field, I want to talk to you about that other field, too. When we talked about Alex Higgins and beating him at the Crucible, I've been to watch a few world championships at the Crucible just as a punter. And it's an incredible atmosphere there because you're very, very close to the tables, aren't you? And it, it just feels quite theatrical and it feels, what what's it like to play in that auditorium? Well,
1: the thing about the, the, the Crucible is it's it, probably not how you expect it to be because, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to have, to have been, before I played there in 84, I'd been there in 1979, the year Terry Griffiths won, because we were supporting John Virgo, who was a friend, friend of mine in London and, uh, at the time. And uh, so I'd been to the Crucible. When a young player gets there, they might think, well, this is it, I've arrived. It's like playing at Lords, you know, playing a test match at Lords. But actually, it's, it's a strange place because it's so tight in there, two tables, it doesn't really work. It should only have one table in the middle of the arena. And you may have noticed that when you went there, but it's so pokey on either side. Yeah. You know, you've got the crowd are on top of you. And you think, this is just strange. You've got the big screen up. They never bring that down. Uh, they never remove that like they have in other venues because the two tables are just too close together. It will be distracting. So you've got two tables crammed into a little auditorium. Spectators on top of you, balconies at the side. Everyone's looking down. It's like a sort almost like a traditional amphitheatre, you know. And it's an unusual atmosphere. And while it's great, and we've all got great memories of the place, some bad memories too, actually, I won't lie. But you, you can you can kind of grow to love the Crucible more than immediately realise how great it is because really it's a venue that's too
0: small. When I was a kid, um, I got a little six by three foot snooker table and my room wasn't quite big enough for it. So I had a, a proper, sn- I had a snooker cue, and I had a kind of like half queue because I could only play certain shots from the corners um, because you you couldn't get the full stroke in. But And it's almost a little bit like that, isn't it? I mean, it's not quite, because obviously you can get the full stroke in at the Crucible, but it is quite, I think that's what it, what makes it great to actually go there and watch it because you are so close to it and it, it does feel different.
1: Well, I, I tell you what, if you're playing... Say on the left-hand table, and the the cue ball's in the left corner pocket, top left corner pocket, and someone is going to play a shot. Basically, you're sitting in your chair, and they've got they're they're playing the shot, and their backside is in your face. There (laughs) there is only just enough room. I mean, there really is. Uh, It's what the point you're making about uh, you know having a short cue because you can't always play a shot. You've got to have a perimeter around the edge of a table of around six feet all around it. You know, people think that if you've got a twelve by six table, you need a twelve foot room, but of course you need it to be double that I mean it's got to be double because you've got to get the space around it. There is only just enough room. and I don't know if you know but when you watch Nuke at the Crucible you'll often see the same faces in the front row every year Yeah. and these are the season ticket holders. But I actually have a theory that those people they, they almost like them in the front row because they know how to go. They know not to move around all the time and be fiddling around with their phones whereas if you're a first timer at snooker, you know you might just end up putting the players off because it, there's so much going on there and it's so much on top of you. It's just a strange venue. Uh, it's a brilliant venue with one table. Um, with two tables, you know it's small, but it all adds to the atmosphere and it all adds to the drama of it. And uh, you've, we've got big venues like the Ali Pally, in, you know, in in uh, uh, in London. That's that's a terrific venue, and you've got places like the Barbican in York. Really good venues, but there's something a little bit special about the Crucible. But a bit idiosyncratic you know and uh, that, that's kind of the nice thing with it and, and also the fact that it's been played there since 1977 there were some pretty historic moments and great memories that everyone's got.
0: I like the fact that if you get a certain seat you can see both tables at the same time you can get almost like twi- double value for your money if you go uh, and sit in the uh, in the middle seats. Your, your dad Jeff was a, a snooker player as well wasn't he and I, I wrote a book Neil um, following on in the footsteps of cricketing fathers about fathers and sons in cricket and the presses of expectation and how you get into the game, because you're immersed in it from a from an early age. Everybody says that snooker is the, the sign of a misspent youth, but I guess your youth uh-huh. was spent following your dad's footsteps, was it?
1: Yeah, well, in the case of my dad, who um, he's still alive, he's elderly now, my dad, but um, he, um, he, he was not really very welcome. He, he found his way into a snooker club in West London, and uh, my grandfather um, is a former high-ranking policeman, and he absolutely was dead against my dad going into snooker clubs you know in his sort of schooling years or whenever he was he probably about 16 i think at the time but anyway he used to basically sneak in there and that's how he got into the game so he wasn't particularly welcomed he just managed to 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 find a way of having a game of snooker without his dad knowing and then of course when he got into his early 20s it, it was out of his dad's hands really he could do what he liked but um that's how he got into the game and of course i followed in my dad's footsteps and the thing with me is i knew all of these players before i was playing i mean for instance, Alex Higgins, who you mentioned earlier. I mean, I yeah. played in the cruise. I knew him when when I was 12 years of age. And Terry Griffiths, another one, an old friend of mine. I knew him when I was 12. And that was before I ever played snooker because I used to go along when my dad was competing with these guys and watch. So I think then a few years later, they'd say, well, hang on, Jeff's son, Neil, well, he I've got to play him now. He was that little kid he used to watch. You know, so I think it's, for a while, they, they they didn't think that they thought they wouldn't take me seriously. And then they realised, I'd improved. I could play the game. I mean, I've known them all a long time. And to be honest, that is how snooker is. It, I should think cricket's the same. You know, when you see old cricket pictures of old teams, you think, oh, all these guys have known each other such a long time. You know, in snooker, I mean, I grew up with John Parrott. We we played in the British Junior Championship and the first time I met him, I think we'd have been about 13, the pair of us. So I've known him all my life. I think in, in sports like, like snooker, cricket and, and, and many others, you, you, there's very few outsiders coming to it. Most of these guys... Of a similar age, you've known all your life.
0: I think you're right with cricket. I mean, I, I found heaps of examples of father sons, even grandfather's sons and and, and grandchilds um, playing cricket as professionals. But did you find because you had your dad's name, obviously, um, that people maybe looked at you slightly differently and expected you to be to be fantastic because you, you were following on from your dad?
1: I think so. I think I think people um, you know they expect a lot of you. And I do remember actually that strangely enough. Steve Davis's son, and now he—I uh, think his son is called Greg. And Stephen Hendry has a son called Blaine. I think they both—I uh, may have got the names wrong—but they they both got into snooker for a while. Now, if you think about my situation, my dad, uh, we were both good good players. But there, you've got two of the greatest players of all time whose son wanted to get involved in the game. You know, Steve Davis's boy was was okay, but not quite good enough. Because when he would play, there'd be a huge crowd around the table apparently watching him, and the same of, of, of Stephen Hendry's son. Uh, he, you know, he was coming through promising, but he never quite made it, you know, and I, I guess, uh, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll, you could actually go back to him both. I played with his son Liam, you know, yeah, in, yeah. A, in a few charity oh, well, games. I
0: spoke to Liam in, in, for the book and he basically swapped yeah. it with rugby because he just didn't want to, the comparisons made yeah. all the time.
1: I can understand that. And you know what? He, he was a good cricketer. I mean, I, I mean, I know that there's good and and very good. And people said, well, maybe he wasn't a good cricketer. I I watched him, and he could play. I mean, he, he I would not say he's as good as his dad, and that was the problem he had. He was a good cricketer. I never forget. I played in the charity game with him once, and I was bowling my rubbish basically, <laughs> and he was on the boundary, and there was a chance of of, of a run out, and I asked him. I well, never forget it. I said, get it in quick, and he threw this ball in at me from the boundary, and it, it hit me straight on the knee. Because I was at the, the bowlers then trying to, trying to gather it and run somebody out. And the pace this ball came in at, well, I've never seen anything like it. I, but I didn't gather it or anything. It just whacked me. And um, he was a powerful lad, you know, at Liam. You know, I know he went on to play rugby, but you know, actually he was lost a little bit to cricket. Because I think he took five wickets for Hampshire on his, on his debut or at right yeah. the start of his yeah. career, didn't he? He, and, he, uh, he
0: said to me in the book, he, he's not sure of confidence with his cricket. He, he thinks he could have played for England. He thinks he could have gone on and had a long and, and distinguished county career. But he said, yeah, but everybody was always going to compare me to my dad. He's probably the greatest all-rounder of all time. I'd have needed to have taken 50 more test wickets than him, scored quicker than him, had three points before I went out every time. Yeah, yeah, the character and the and the magnitude of Ian Botham's image was always going to be on his shoulders. Where he said he went to rugby, he scored a try, I think, in one of his first matches in a, in a rugby game. He looked at the headlines the next day, and it was just Ian Botham scores the winner kind of thing, and nobody mentioned his dad in it at all. And he just thought, well, that's the right decision there.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's a sensible thing to say, but uh, but as you say, I have spoken to people over the years say, well, you know exactly that he was living, in, you know, his dad, you know, following his dad's footsteps a bit in his shadow and all these things. But he he could play. He was a good cricketer, you know, and it's a bit of a loss to the game. He's a big, strong lad. You know, and uh, but there you go. I mean, it, it, you know, people make their decisions for, for their own reasons. And it sounds like, he, you know, all things considered, he, he made the decision he wanted to do. But you know, there's there's definitely pressures, aren't there? In you know, through, going through families. You know, we've seen it with the Cowdrys, haven't we? You know, with you know, with Chris Cowdery of course, he was England captain once, but. Uh, you know, it was always going to be hard for him and, and I think even the other the other Cowderys have found it quite difficult as well.
0: I'll send you a copy of my book, you might find it interesting, the, the cowdries and the Hadleys and all of those are all in there it's, uh, yeah, it's I found it a fascinating bit of research to do and, and, and to write it up, it was, yeah. it was good to talk to them. A very naive question here from somebody that has a, a slightly more than passing interest in snooker but certainly not an expert in it, why can't snooker players play until they're 70? Um, because it isn't a massively physical sport, the technique as we said, it's a grooved action, it's something that you get used to and everything like that but you still find that you get to a certain age we saw it with davis we saw it with um, henry to a degree that you get to a certain age and you start to maybe just drop off a little bit is that because the hunger goes the eyes go what's what's the difference
1: well yeah i mean i I think it's a combination of all those clearly um i think your thought process as you get older changes in life i think when you're a young man you probably you probably have no fear uh i mean the best example of someone that's changed a lot over the years is, is my good friend jimmy white who's a I work with on the US Sport on the snooker. Now, he, he as a youngster was a tearaway, as we know. Everyone knows who's got any interest in snooker will tell you that Jimmy was a tearaway. You know, he's a brilliant snooker player. You know, he lived a, lived a life. Now you see Jimmy and he's, he gets nervous before matches. He's a different kind of character. He's very, he's very punctual for everything. He's never late for anything. Whereas years ago, he was, he, was, he was, you know, you couldn't keep him in a room for any period of time. Now he's, he's the first one out on the practice table, puts in all his hours. He doesn't drink anymore. He's given all, all that stuff up. So he's got a different mindset. But as a consequence, he's not quite the same force, you know, because that, that fire in his belly has gone a little bit, you know. Now he's, you know, he gets nervous and it doesn't look comfortable out there on the match table. He can still play. Don't get me wrong. He's a really good player still. I've watched him practice. So he, he hasn't got that anymore. The other thing is, I think generally players are not as motivated as they get older. They can't put in all those hours and hours and hours, you know, on the match to, on the practice table that you need to. I mean, when you're young, you just spend all day in the snooker club, right? You, you might not be practicing all those hours, but you, you'll get to the snooker club in the morning at ten o'clock. You might not leave there till ten or eleven at night. You won't be playing for twelve hours, but you just want to be around snooker clubs, around snooker people. And you know, as you get older and you get a family, you get other interests you don't really want to do that. You, you want it to be a bit more like a job. And that's maybe where, I don't know, you, you lose that little bit of fun of playing. Goes You know, the joy of just potting balls just seems to go and it becomes a job. And, and and the older you get, the less you want to do it. And then you just practice some matches. The eyes go as well. Fear creeps into your game. And uh, it's just sort of all about growing up really and getting old. And I think that, you know, you can get guys in their 60s can still play. There's some, Good players, but you're never going to have that same hunger and cutting edge that you've got when you play a sport at a young age. And I know that snooker is not very physical, and some people would not even would argue it's not even a sport. But, you know, I mean, why did Phil Taylor end up not being able to win dark matches you know, yeah. after all those years? It took him a long time to, to, to not be able to win them, but... Um, there's something about it you just lose that little edge that you had I think as you get older
0: you mentioned Jimmy White I mean he's one of uh, everybody's favourite players because of just the way you play the game he just uh, he, he attacked and he was he had the flair and the charisma didn't he and, and was brilliant but we we were talking about Don Bradman the other day on the on the podcast and He finished with an average in Test cricket of 99.94 because he failed to get that uh, four runs at the Oval that he needed in his final innings. And I said uh, of Don Bradman, I think his legend is even better because he didn't quite get to 100. It was 99.94. I think with Jimmy White, there's a a fondness for him and and his legends possibly even greater because he didn't quite win the world title. Would you see it the same way? Mm.
1: No, I can see exactly. It's a really good comparison, actually. I hadn't thought about that, obviously business with John Bradman is, is interesting I, mean, I don't know if it's true by the way before I go on to your point, I've heard that the story that no one really knew for sure that he only needed four runs in that innings until subsequently they found that out because I guess stats people were, were not as sharp as that sort of your Andrew Samson nowadays so is that true? Did, did everyone know that he needed four runs in the last innings?
0: Neil Foles, before I do my uh, outro to this podcast, I'm going to have to look that up because I'm going to have to confirm that or deny it because I don't know, actually. But, yeah, it's an no, I- interesting I, point.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think that's what I heard. Anyway, um, go, going back to what you're saying about Jimmy, you know, you may have a point about that because, because I, I, I've done a couple of vodcasts this summer uh, for Eurosport. You know, we're talking about, you know, bygone eras, bygone matches, great rivalries. And people think that, um, you know, Jimmy White was, was something of a, not not a failure. That's a terrible way of describing it. But you know, a, a, a choker or something. You know, a, but all these someone that just couldn't get over the line because he won the he won the Masters as a young man. He won the UK Championship. And the other thing people don't realise, he, he lost in six World Finals. four of them to even envy. But he beat, he beat Hendry on two other occasions. After the, all those finals, he beat Hendry. And he beat him in another match. He didn't beat him in a final. The, the final that might have been the one that got away might have been the year that he played John Parrot And as, as great as John Parra play was, Jimmy was a strong favourite to win that match. Uh, 91 it was and that that he wasn't playing Henry he wasn't playing David but in the first session of that match John Parrott played absolutely flawless snooker no one could have played better and he won I think all the frames in the session it was certainly something like seven one he, he just drew away from him and he he just broke his heart really and um it just wasn't meant to be for Jimmy but you're right I think he's he sort of looked at fondly that as as the player you know who who just didn't quite win the world championship I mean Jimmy will still tell you that he will win it one day but I don't think he will personally I think that ship has sailed years ago but yeah I mean I think anyone who had any interest in sport whether you were a friend of Jimmy's or not you would have wanted him to win it so badly and then maybe sometimes when you want something so badly then uh, it just doesn't happen for you
0: I'm going to finish with three questions and they're going to be cricket related but you can bring Snooker into the answers if you want to as well if you could live 24 hours in the skin of a cricketer. could choose any cricketer, current or past, and be them for a day, live their life and have their skills and ability and everything that goes with it. Who would you pick?
1: Well, you know, that's a very interesting question. You know, there's a part of me that would say, this is really boring now, I'm going to say, what about Alistair Cook? First of all, he's someone who is now, has played international cricket now. He's happy to go and play for Essex. He spends his day on the farm. And the other thing is, He's never really discovered social media. And I think that's the best thing you could ever have because <laughs> that, is, that is Pandora's box, isn't it? I mean, some of the stuff on social media now, you know, and when he, during his playing career, I don't think... He, I, I get the feeling he never saw what people said about him, good or bad. So I'm going to be boring and say, let's just go almost wind the clock back and say, you would like to be Alistair Cook, you would like to be scoring runs, doing a bit of farming and
0: just not gazing at your phone all the time. Your Twitter handle... Foldy one four seven, but I looked at Foldy your. one four seven. I looked at your uh, your your Wikipedia page before I had this chat, and your highest break was one forty two. So, are you a little uh, bit of fraud there? Well, thanks very much. No, it was one <laughs>
1: hundred forty seven was the bus I used to get to school. you've you've put two and two together.
0: So you assume that's what it meant. That's my my mistake. Sorry, <laughs> I, I apologise for that question. I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, last two questions: your best and worst moments in sport. If we could do cricket and snooker. Your best moments in snooker. Your best moment watching cricket.
1: Well, best moment in snooker. I guess I'm, I'm lucky enough to win a ranked event. I, I won the international. I beat Cliff uh, silver in the final. I think, I think, I think. What I would say, my best moment in snooker would not be that. It would be when uh, playing for England in two consecutive years we won the, the snooker World Cup. We beat Australia in the final one year. And we beat the rest of the world side. It was eight sides, I think it was. Um, it meant a lot to me to play for England, you know, at snooker. I, I have to say we had the we had the best team. We we, had, we were the world numbers one, two, and three. I mean, we I played with Steve Davis, Jimmy White, the three man team, and we won it in, in Bournemouth on two occasions. And there were good sides around, like Scotland were just coming through with good players as well. And and uh, obviously, you know, Ireland had. Alex Higgins and, and uh Dennis Taylor teamed up actually one year, which is interesting, you know, given that those two weren't sort of best the best of buddies, but my best way watching cricket. As much as I go back all these years and I remember I remember um, heading me in eighty one I think really my best moments watching cricket are, are what we saw in 2019. Uh, the, the two instances of you no, know, I was I was actually at a cricket club on, the, on our cricket tour when we won the the World Cup final. Uh, I didn't play. In, we, we go on the uh, in, on the cricket tour in the New Forest and we were in the Cricket Club watching it on the TV there. The, you know the, the the England World Cup the Super Over win and it's going to take some beating, isn't it? You know you can go back as far as you like, but that's going to take some beating. But I think. The Henley Test, where Stokes got the runs with, with Jack Leach at the end. If I could have two great cricketing moments, it's nice to know they're recently and not in the dark, dim and distant past. They would be much two We talked about
0: the 1985 final, the Davis-Taylor final. And we talked, you just talked about those two 2019 events. There's a common thread there, isn't there? Because there's the ups and downs. I mean, as an England fan watching those both of those matches, there were times where you just thought, oh, this is over, we've lost this. And then there were times where you thought, oh, we've got this in the bag now. And it just went up and down and up and down all the way through that it was the same in that Taylor Davis final, I guess. For a classic of a classic sporting moment, you need to have those sways in in advantage.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it's the old expression to say it's the hope that kills you, isn't it? You know, you're watching something and you think, okay, we're going to win, we're going to win, and, and you know, and then and then it all gets taken away from you, and it, you know, it, it's quite difficult, really. It, you know, it's quite it's quite difficult. But as far as an emotional roller coaster, I think that World Cup final. Well, if you're ever going to see anything more emotionally sort of driven than that, then. I don't know, I can't imagine what it would be.
0: I don't think any of would be able to cope with it. <laughs> it was just, that was just special, wasn't it? It was amazing. They always yeah. tell you as an interviewer to end on a high, so let's finish with your worst moments <laughs> in, uh, in, in snooker and in, in cricket. What's, what's the, what was the day that you maybe not, or the moment you wouldn't want to relive in your snooker life?
1: I don't know. I think, I think um, in snooker, what it was all about was, Stand in the top 16 in the world. And what they used to do, they used to update the rankings at the end of every season. And if you dropped out the 16, then you had to play extra qualifiers. And there was always a suspicion that if you dropped out the 16, then you might not ever get back into it because not many people did. Most people, when they dropped out, that was it. They sort of fell off the bottom of them. Page of the ranking list, you know, and that's what happened to them. And I remember one year at the Crucible, I was playing my first round match, and I had to beat a guy called Wayne Jones, who was a, a Welshman. And, uh, I was expected to beat him. I'd beaten him the year before, but if I lost the match, I dropped out the sixteen. And I remember not very far down during that match, I was in the dressing room in the mid-second interval, and I just punched the um, the the window and managed to smash all the glass in the window and I'm not the most I haven't really got a bad temper but all the glass shattering and falling out onto the street below, mercifully no one was below there uh, I went on to lose the match, dropped out at 16. I did get back actually a couple of years later, but I think my worst moment, I think that was the time when I realized that, you know, you can't let these things just take your life over because really, if you're desperate to win, you're not going to win. So I just, I just, it, it, it was a low moment for me because clearly everything I wanted to happen was never going to happen. Once you're making stupid decisions, like punching a window open and it could have cut me hand anything. So I think that was my worst snooker moment. And, um, I probably got what I deserved. I just dropped out. and uh, It's only when you look at life a little bit differently you can come out the other side of all that, I think.
0: To, to, to bounce back, though, and come back into the top 16, because it is a magical 16, isn't it? That, that 16 that makes all of the events is, is huge in snooker, and to, to come back into that was quite some achievement.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was bigger then, and I don't mean that things were better then. I mean that in those days, when you dropped out of the sixteen, you were out for at least a year. Whatever you did the next year, your ranking would never change. It was fixed for one year after the world championships. So They're only reset once a year now. It's a rolling list, so if you're out of the sixteen, you can do well in the tournament. You can be in for the next tournament, but it was just it was just that for a year at least, possibly too you know, you'd have to play qualifiers, you'd have to, you weren't sure you were going to be at the Crucible next year, you wouldn't be in the Masters because only the 16 players were in that. So it was a big cut-off, you know, it was the, it was like, it was like falling out of the football league, really, if you like, you know, and and having to get back in. That's what it felt like. But I think the trouble is, it's like anything else, the more you, these barriers are in your mind and if things have become too important to you, then, you know, I mean, Steve Davis once said, you've got to play snooker like it means nothing when really you know it means everything. Yeah. And that's the good point. It's like, you know, cricketers are the same, aren't they? You know, you see, see a batsman coming in and he's petrified. Of, of, You know he's going to get, you know, he's not going to make runs, you know, you've got to play with a bit of freedom, haven't you? Or else, what's the point?
0: Let's rephrase that last question about worst moment in cricket watching because it sounds, listening to you talking about cricket, that you genuinely love the game. You've had hours and hours of pleasure from it. It doesn't sound like there have been too many bad moments watching the watching the sport.
1: No, not really. No, I mean obviously the the T Twenty World Cup final, the Stokes over to to, to break was was, was 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 tough, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that but but it didn't feel it it, it wasn't a test match, you know. It didn't quite feel the same way. Um, you no, know, I'm just trying to think back all, all over all the years, really. That there, there, as an England cricket fan, you know through those eighties and early nineties, there was some extraordinary disappointments. You know, too many to. I think, I think, I think maybe one I could think of now would be the Adelaide Test, uh, where we were about to level the series against Australia, having of course won the Ashes in 2005. The Adelaide Test, which we lost after Collingwood's double hundred, how we managed to lose that test, I'll never know. And I think from then, that was a very disappointing moment because I think we knew <laughs> our fate that we were going to get white. That was probably the, one of the most disappointing moments in a watcher.
0: I, I mean, that, that's a symptomatic of a, a team that's struggling to win, isn't it? And you get that winning mentality and you get that in cricket, you get that in snooker, you get that in all sports. That if you can get used to winning and you get that hunger for it and get used to those 50-50 little situations in matches, you tend to get over the line more often than not if, you're, if you've got that winning mentality and you've got the confidence.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, some people are better than others, aren't they, at this? I mean, you know, there's no getting away from it. I mean, Kevin Peterson was someone you either loved or you hated, really, at cricket. But I think he did bring about a lot of freedom. I watched, you know, watched the the Edgbass and test. Again, this week, they've, they've shown all the, um, uh, the, the edge bass in 2005. And, and, you know, you actually see someone coming through there who had, a, who had a little bit more about him, didn't he? Someone like that. And, and um, it kind of made people realise what was possible, you know. And, you know, w- when you're under pressure, you, you don't have to go into your shell. You can go out and do big big things instead. There's two ways you can take it. So a lot of it's about the personalities in the game. You know, over the years, there's been many of those which I've loved watching at cricket.
0: Neil Fowles, it's been brilliant to have you on the Cricket Badger podcast. You mentioned earlier that sometimes you can talk to people and you can learn after about two minutes that they don't really know what they're talking about when it comes to cricket. (laughs) You've passed the test, mate, and it's been a pleasure speaking to you today.
1: Pleasure, pleasure. It's that Badger style.
0: Thank you very much indeed to Neil Folds for being my guest on this edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast. Really did enjoy that chat with him. First of all, before I sign off, just a little bit of housekeeping in that we talked about Don Bradman and we're kind of comparing Bradman with Jimmy White in terms of not quite reaching the goal that they'd set themselves. Don Bradman out for naught, obviously, in his final innings at the Oval. Needed four to get to that magical 100 test match average, finished with 99.94. And Neil Foles, in the in the chat we just had, he said, I don't think he actually knew that he needed four. Well, I couldn't just let that lie, so I had a look at that. And Neil Harvey did a really good interview. And the piece, uh, one of the pieces that was uh, written up about an interview with Neil Harvey goes like this. He walked to the wicket in front of a crowd of 20,000, having scored 6,996 test runs and lost his wicket 69 times. His average was 101.39. If he was to be dismissed for a 70th time, he needed just four runs to reach 7,000 and end his career with an average of 100. But nobody knew that. Nobody had a clue. The press didn't know. There was no television, of course. And if the press didn't know, nobody's going to know. So that's how it was. We just played the game as a normal session, says Neil Harvey. So Neil Foles, your fellow Neil, confirms your story. You were quite correct there, and that's something that I've learnt by talking to you during this podcast. Don Bradman didn't quite know that he needed four to average 100. He was out for naught, ended up averaging 99.94. Adds even more drama and intrigue to that tale. As I said at the top of the podcast, plenty more to come as well over the next few weeks on the cricket badger pod so please like it subscribe to it so it drops into your inbox and leave a good comment as well on whatever platform that you listen to the podcast on if you could leave it five stars and a nice little write-up that would be massively appreciated plenty of really good comments coming in that you've been enjoying the listens over the last few weeks of lockdown so if you could spare me a couple of minutes just to do that that would be hugely appreciated so there ends the first of the famous fans, Cricket Badger Podcast. A great success, that. We'll do more of those as we go through the next few weeks and months of the Cricket Badger Pod. We'll be back to cricketing action in the next edition. We'll hear from Mark Cosgrove, the Australian who was expecting to be in Wales playing for Glamorgan this summer. I spoke to him at his home in South Australia. We'll catch up with him next time on the Cricket Badger Podcast. I've been James. Thank you very much indeed for listening. And I'll see you next time, Badgers. <laughs>